Hey everybody, this week's episode is once again brought to you by Bearded Brothers Energy Bars. Delicious, organic, nutritious energy bars made with love in Austin, Texas. And listeners of our show can get 15% off if you go to their website, that's beardedbrothers.com, and use the coupon code DREAMBEARD at checkout. That's 15% off of some delicious bars. Go get some, beardedbrothers.com, coupon code DREAMBEARD. Calms me down. On your I get calmed down when I get pumped up. That's so, you're, so you're like a left-handed tantrika, right? You're like the guy that goes and sits on the near the burning pyres and drinks out of human skulls. Yeah, yeah. But I was know, wondering uh, if I were to be a Hindu god, down in ashes from the. Do you think I'm more of a Hanuman though? Because I am a mischief. I like to say things that I don't believe just to rile people up. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to the Dreamer Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Fournette. The voices you just heard are Tim Bradford and Chad Reynolds, the founders of Short Order Poems. They're my guests for this week, and we sat down and had a really fun conversation. You can definitely tell that these guys have a lot of chemistry with each other. I can tell that sometimes I say things and Tim just is like, oh no. (laughs) Here we go. What? (laughs) No, I... I always enjoy seeing where This week, Tim, Chad, and I sit down to talk about poetry and short order poems and how that came to be. And we talked about science fiction and literature and history and politics and hockey and tons of things that were totally off topic. But it was a nice, fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you guys will too. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump right into that. Enjoy. You gotta read. Do you like sci-fi? Yeah. Okay. Kim Stanley Robinson. You ever okay. read any of his stuff? He mm. wrote Blue Mars, Green Mars, Red Mars, that whole Mars trilogy. Okay. Kind of like a hard sci-fi guy. Cool. But uh, I've never read any of his stuff until I started to read his first novel, which is called The Wild Shore, and it's part of this trilogy he wrote called Three Californias. In which he envisions three different futures for California, and Wild Shore is the <laughs> first one, and it is awesome. And it's like a fictionalized, like it's a fictionalized account, but it's really cool. It's about this. It's told from the point of view of this teenage boy, uh, and it's it's like in 2050. There's been a nuclear attack on the United States, and the United States has been brought back to like pre-industrial society. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a, there's like the enemy patrols the shores and if they see that the Americans are rebuilding bridges, they'll like blow up the bridge. Huh. So they have to, they're like very rural, very agrarian society and they don't really know any better. Mm-hmm. There's an old fart that remembers the old days and he's always telling kids about it and they're like, ah, oh, shut up, you old man. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> but it's really cool. It's, it's really well written. Is it? Uh, yeah. it? It reminds me of like Margaret Atwood or Ursula K. Le Guin, like high high fiction. Okay. Um, and uh, huh. it's been, I've been thinking about it because 
it's funny how it just seems like we're one disaster away from people just resigning these these rights and privileges that we've worked so hard for. Yeah. Uh, and so it seems like a very timely uh, read because if you let go of those things, they're going to be gone. Yeah. Maybe forever. Yeah. Or certainly for a long-ass time mm-hmm. because it takes a long time to get people to believe in these intangible things. And I'm thinking about like intangible things like the idea of discourse, yeah. the idea of compromise, the idea of representational democracy, the yeah. idea of decency and civility and engagement. Once you start to like encamp and see yeah. a, an other in the other person mm-hmm. and suspect them of yeah. nefarious deeds, yeah. you've crossed a Rubicon. Yeah, and, and the first thing that came to mind when you were like listing things off organized religion, like I've always heard that we were talking about atheism a while ago and the idea of like science versus religion and like why are you right or like prove to me that there is no God and I think it was like Ricky Gervais always says which I mean you take him or leave him for his word I'll take he him. always says yeah yeah I mean he's hilarious but he always says if you were to just like scrap everything like a thousand years from now science would be back and everything would be the same all like you could get rid of all the books all the religious texts all of like scientific texts and the scientific texts would be back because there's tests mm-hmm. and the tests would always turn out the same but the religion wouldn't be back in the same way yeah that it would it's interesting though like so you look at how <clears throat> we've already seen it the middle ages mm-hmm. were a repudiation of some of the progress that happened in ancient Greece and ancient Rome and the Mediterranean world, in a way, they turned their back on some of these advances. Maybe not even explicitly. It just a slow erosion of values or curiosity or something. A thousand years later, Mm -hmm. people are living in like pigsties in a medieval society. Uh, And how it's not inconceivable to think that yeah okay yeah, science is real and science science is true and 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 but you have to have the context that creates mm-hmm. the outward looking curiosity that that breeds science yeah. and that is that that environment is is precious and that's what can get eroded and destroyed and then mm-hmm. next thing you know people aren't curious yeah like I think of medieval art <clears throat> where people weren't looking at real life they were just painting from other paintings mm-hmm. so everything is skewed there's no perspective and finally somebody named Leon Battista Alberti was like hey man well why don't we have some perspective mm-hmm. and that was in the 1300s and next thing you know Botticelli Boccaccio mm-hmm. uh, not Boccaccio um, <laughs> he's the writer Michelangelo um, <laughs> Michelangelo, he was a little later, mm-hmm. but uh, Raffaello, they were painting from what they saw, mm-hmm. and that's the difference. Like the, the little twist got Donatello, all the turtles, all the turtles, <laughs> all, the turtles. <laughs> all the ones, and they were they were doing ninja moves. They had yeah. weapons. They were very effective. and that's when pizza was invented too. And the rats came back, yeah. but they defeated them. Yeah, yeah. So 
I'm on a rant. Sorry. I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here because I think, you know, I, I mean, with the current political climate, I think we're all doom and gloom. We're one disaster away. Yeah, and I think we're this and that. Be, and I think as humans, we're more resilient than that. I mean, I think there's, you know, for, you know we look at the fact that, you know, our current administration, yeah, has their heads up their ass, but they weren't, you know, elected by a majority, you know. So you could also turn it around and go, look, the majority of the people in this country stand for science. They stand for yeah. progress. Yeah. And we're, and we're having to have this weird fight where we're trying to push back against the erosion of that. Yeah. But I, I don't see any power structure being able to just deface it, wipe it away. Because, you know, think about what um, was happening with climate research and the whole worry about that. And then immediately people all over the globe started saying, OK, we're going we're gonna to save this database. We're going to save this database. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. administration as a whole can walk away from science and be absolute, you know, shitheads but um you know i think there's too many people fighting the good fight on the planet right now yeah. to have that kind of back step mm. in that way now now you know the, the way it could maybe happen is if there was a war and that's that's a you know clear concern on everyone's minds and, well and that yeah. you know a, bi- a big war a nuclear yeah. attack of some sort you know yeah. that 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 could be a different i mean uh, i <clears throat> i hope you're fish, right i hope but, you're right I, I think that humans are resilient i think that human political structures aren't yeah and the context in which human brilliance is allowed to shine forth those contexts aren't as resilient as we think but right right but no i, I would agree with and like even with like in margaret atwood's the handmaid's tale hey gilead is surrounded by normal countries mm-hmm. canada is accepting refugees from gilead mexico does a deal with gilead like so while the world is normal shit hits the fan in the United States yeah. and all the people who are left there suffer the gays yeah. the women so I don't know yeah. it's fun it's fun to think about <laughs> well I mean the other thing I would say is that is that um, you know as broken as the system seems right now one thing I think that is interesting to recognize is that I mean discourse wise maybe but so many things aren't that that radically different than the last eight years under Obama. I mean, as far yeah. as our military policy, drones, d- d- uh, you know, income uh, inequality, you know, there, there's so many areas where yeah. you could look at the last eight years under, under Obama as this this you know amazing time, but really a lot of people are like yeah. you know it's it's neoliberalism and yeah. and it really isn't that different than yeah. what the and gdp stands for and to really have the change that we want to really step forward and progress as a species we need something completely yeah. different yeah. and i think that that's why in a way why trump got elected because people think that there's this you know the ship is sailing in a certain direction how can one man really upset that mm-hmm. well if that man has access to the nuclear codes and is not stable and gets us in a war with Kim Jong Un over Twitter, over Twitter, <laughs> then all of a sudden that's a different game-changing kind of situation. Yeah, that would be a game changer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah nuclear. Uh, it should, should be. It we are, would suck. It should be really interesting here. I'm glad I don't live in South Korea or Japan. Yeah. yeah. Right now. They're probably saying the same thing about the United States. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people are saying the same thing about the United States. I really just wanted to live in Sweden to go on the record of saying I'll live in Sweden. I, you know, that's weird. Live there. That's weird. I, I, <laughs> Sweden, I, if you're listening. I've had fantasies about uh, I'm a quarter Swedish, and I, I was thinking about could I apply for political asylum at this yeah. point? You know? I mean, the second 
the day after the election. I, I grew up in Canada, and I'm still a citizen. What are you doing here? Exactly. <laughs> it was a conversation that we had. Like, do we, do we go? Do we go back? We go like, Let me answer that. The answer is yes. <laughs> you need to go and not pay for health insurance. <laughs> now, free college. Well, what especially too wrong? because Miranda. Right, come on, we're done with this yeah. interview. Let's go pack. Yeah, come on, let's pack up. Let's I'll, get, I'll get these guys out of here. In. But yeah, speaking of health insurance, like Moret has a broken back right now, and we're like figuring out how to like pay for spinal fusion surgery, and I mean, all of this talk of healthcare, and I'm just like, holy shit! This is my first experience with like a serious medical procedure and paying yeah. for it through like my work's insurance, and work. it just really shows you how much of a racket, like a fucking racket, you insurance is. It's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Where where it's where did you grow crazy. up in Canada? The Northeast Coast, New Brunswick. Oh man. North of Maine. Hey, congratulations, by the way, on two things. Uh, I forgot to say when I came through the door. Happy birthday to you. Oh, thanks. Uh, you just turned uh, 20... 30... 21? 20, 30. Are you legal yet? 22. 26. 26. <laughs> congratulations on that. Happy birthday to you. Yeah, I did it. And, um, <laughs> and congratulations on the Penguins victory. I was oh, thinking yeah. of you with yeah, all your posts. Thanks. I can't say I'm a Penguins fan necessarily. I'm a hockey fan. Yeah. Just I just watch it. Now most people know I, my yeah. like relationship with the, the whole hockey thing. So yeah. look like you guys had yeah. some good watch parties here. With yeah, yeah. Sunny, always, I like uh, Sunny and rooting, rooting, yeah. rooting young. Yeah, we got you celebrated a hockey jersey too. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> it was a well, good series. Cool. It was a pretty good series. It was. It was yeah. overall, and it was funny too talking about like changing and political climate like it was nashville versus yeah. pittsburgh and pittsburgh's been a franchise since 1967 and nashville is like a relatively newer franchise with a new fan base and mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see like how much they marketed to i would even say like <coughs> trump supporting America mm. like just to try to like grow the fan base of hockey yeah. like every single game was like a country music artist singing the national anthem yeah that was, it was interesting yeah. <laughs> and get this they would throw <laughs> they would throw catfish on the ice they would throw dead catfish yeah. on the ice in the arena in Nashville yeah Based on what? I like, don't know. Why. And then the Nashville I mean, There's a hat trick. If you score three goals, you know you can throw your hat on the yeah. ice. Well, and there's I, where, I, there's a, there's a precedent though, isn't there? Who yeah, throws? it's kind of a bastardization of the Detroit Red Wings. They would throw like squid. Squid. What was that about? Why? I don't really know the story behind it. Um, but they've been doing it since like the 19. Yeah, like, and it's their 50s. thing. They yeah. throw squid on the ice, like, like to just like disrupt the game. And other teams have like. I feel like every time a team. This isn't a hockey podcast, by the way. <laughs> Every time a team like gains, like gets to like a, even outside of hockey, just in sports in general, and they get a fan base like that quickly, the fan base is just trying to like create an identity for themselves. Like with the Florida Panthers in like the early two thousands, it was like little like rubber mice that they threw on the ice. Huh. Not real mice. No. I think it might have come from like an incident where like a mouse got on the ice or something. That is so weird. Yeah. I think it'd be fun to throw ice cubes on the ice. Yeah. Just really throw people for a loop. <laughs> and con congrats to you because you predicted it. And I, I really didn't think it would happen. Predicted. Westbrook MVP. I, I just, I mean, I understood. I did it. I saw it coming. After Chad very meticulously, carefully explained it to me, you know, the, the, the importance of what he did, you know. Mm. Um, 
I'm joking because there was a moment when he was like, I was like, wait, averaging what? There, we got into this funny conversation about that. But um, I was, I, I kind of mean, I was the naysayer. I was like, you know, no, look, you know, he's not gonna get it because they went out in the what first round and, and yeah, and, and it just, you know, I just it. was like, that's, it's just they're not gonna pick him. They're gonna pick someone else. And Chad's like, no, no, this is too huge, too huge. He's yeah. going to get it. He's going to get it for sure. He never backed down. And he did. So and, I thought of you when that happened. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but I was surprised by Paul George. That's incredible. Yeah, that I was, was going to ask you. That's super cool. Also, I, possibly Rudy Gay, too. He's Pat. They passed on Rudy Gay. Really? Yeah, because oh, they just signed yeah. Patrick Patterson. Oh, yeah, like to, last night. Yeah. For to my like, team, the Raptors. Yeah. So so now they've, they can't afford Rudy Gay. So that, that ship has sailed. But I think Patrick Patterson, Patterson's just good. a pretty good thing. And uh, having Paul George is amazing. I think that Westbrook winning the MVP mm-hmm. probably is what allowed George to kind of reconcile coming to Oklahoma City yeah. in his mind. But what do you think of him? Well, plus he's been in Indiana, so there won't be much of a change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, okay. there's, there's an interesting theory behind that, too, and I'd, I'd love to hear your... technology. So the theory is kind of like that I've heard at least is Paul George is like already outright said that he wants to play in LA mm-hmm. and Westbrook is from LA and everyone's like kind of scared that Westbrook is going to go back to LA. Mm-hmm. So there are some people that are like this is a horrible move because we're basically bringing in an advocate mm-hmm. like someone to come in and just like be in the ear of Westbrook all year like hey man I'm going to go to LA. LA. You come to LA. Well, that's an interesting theory. I mean, if <laughs> if they win, though, if they have success, but do you think the chances of them like? I don't know. I mean, the chances are Warriors the or? chances are pretty low. But yeah. it's a hell of a lot better now that Paul oh, George definitely. is around. And I love Paul George. Like I'm excited to. Yeah, he's, like he's an exciting player. He's great. Pretty he's soon, great. you gotta think that. I don't know. Can the Warriors keep it up? I would like to think that if there is a God, God is pissed <laughs> off that that the Warriors have cornered the market on yeah. good basketball in the NBA. Yeah. Like, how many times can What's-His-Nuts make a three from, like, 40 feet out? What's-His-Nuts? <laughs> it, it, like, it really was the least entertaining finals. Yeah, <laughs> like, like come on. That was pretty boring. Pretty soon That's God pretty is going to be helping those threes clank off the side of the rim I just know it it's like that onion article where instead of where the athlete who loses the game does what the athlete who wins the game does where that athlete thanks God for helping him win the game this athlete who loses the game blames God (laughs) (laughs) I like it well cool Um, so you guys have both heard the show a little bit yeah, I'll yeah. probably leave a good yeah. amount of that in because that was just an entertaining chat. And that's always my favorite part of the show is when people <laughs> kind of like go off on a tangent. But there is a little bit of a structure to the show. And I've never done one with two people, so I'm not really sure how to broach it. We can just kind of... Mm. Mainly it's sitting down and having a conversation. So we're doing pretty well so far. But generally where I like to start is where are you from? So and we can start with Tim. Sure. Uh, I'm from here, Oklahoma City. Okay. Born and raised. Left when I was 18. Uh, came back when I was 26. Okay. And have been here pretty much since then. I'm now 47. And uh, 
we spent two years in France and five months in California uh, in the interim. But other than that, been here the whole time. And Chad? Born and raised in Oklahoma City. Left okay. when I was 18. Came back when I was uh, 33. No, sorry, 32. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <clears throat> been here ever since okay. in the in the interim between this stand in Oklahoma and the first stint I was in Virginia Ohio and Massachusetts going to schools and working okay as cool. a teacher and I always like to just because the podcast is loosely structured around like what you're doing in terms of like following your dreams I always like to ask if there was like a thing growing up that you gravitated towards like if someone were to ask you, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Did you have, like, that thing, the answer to that question when you were younger? Sure. Uh, when I was really young, I wanted to be an astronaut. And okay. I actually had uh, grandparents um, in Huntsville, Alabama, where there's the uh, Space and Rocket Center there. And I went to space camp a couple of summers <laughs> nice. and had a colleague, a Jasmine, uh, the, that I used to teach with up at OSU. I had also gone to space camp, and we had laughed about the various experiences we had of <laughs> dreaming of being astronauts. But I let that go pretty quickly, and then uh, was pretty into hockey. And I, you know, oh, I really? think there was a moment where I thought I wanted to be a hockey player, and then I got checked really hard and dislocated my sternoclavicular joint here. It's still kind of a little wonky. Oh, and so then I got really into cycling, and and huh. so there was a good portion of my life from like 16 to about 20 where I was pretty pretty serious about. Uh, road racing and mm. thought that I would become a professional cyclist and then that kind of morphed into maybe a trainer or a coach and whatever mm-hmm. and then I got into religious studies and Buddhism and okay. let that all go <laughs> and so then yeah I mean the dream yeah those were younger dreams and then someone there I had dreams of being a medical anthropologist a Tibetan Buddhist monk and or maybe a, a writer okay so it's kind of a leap from <clears throat> from cycling to scholarly pursuits. Yeah. Was there like a reason for that or I'm trying to yeah, I, you know, I think I burnt out pretty hard on cycling once that I, seems to be I, a I did pretty well as a junior and then did had a pretty good first year as a senior racer, but it's you really just got to give it time it's, and it's because you you just got to build that strength. There's no way you can compete yeah. when you first go from 18 to 19 and you're suddenly racing against guys who are 25 to 30 and have mm-hmm. built all this endurance and muscle mass and um, and I think I just kind of ran out of patience with that and realized that spending that much time on my bike mm-hmm. and also just kind of you know it's a brutal sport I mean it's 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 become less so this way but it used to be a really working class sport I mean yeah. the only people that would would bike race would be people that could endure that kind of suffering mm-hmm. and were looking for a way out of the factory and it was yeah. a way you know you could yeah, um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny because now I think it's a, a bit more of a middle to upper middle class bourgeois sort of, you know, yeah. a lot of the guys in cycling are coming from those kind yeah. of backgrounds. But in Europe, it was really a, a, a hard man sort of sport. And uh, I think when I was in it, you know, there was still a lot of that ethic. And it still is. I mean, it's just you go mm-hmm. watch the races. And there was just a huge crash the other day in the tour. Uh, Mark Cavendish took an elbow from... A yeah. guy at about forty miles an hour had sent him into the barriers and just yeah. brutal. I think brutal that's the crash. Main that, like, I've, that I've never you know, gotten into cycling. Yeah, I've I mean, seen 
too many of those. I mean, I suppose in the NBA you can get clocked or you can break a, you know, bad stuff can happen. But yeah, yeah crashing a bike at forty miles an hour, yeah. you know, that's. Uh, I'd much rather climb. Yeah, yeah, nothing, no, nothing like that can happen in climbing. Yeah, yeah. it's much um, less dangerous. But so, so I, you know, I kind of was drifting away from that. And I just got really into just um, religious studies and cultural studies, South South Asian studies, and, and writing. And I just realized that you know, uh, I was more interested in that than trying to be a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, ended up with a degree, my undergraduate degree in um, human biology with an emphasis in international health and development. Hmm. And I never really did anything with that because um, I ended up going to Nepal on a study abroad program, but I ended up just studying Tibetan Buddhism the whole time. Interesting. And then there was a, there was a important turning point to what I do now with writing, and you know, we'll get to that at yeah, some point, yeah. right? <laughs> um, where I came back uh, when I was 26 and I, and I was thinking to go to um, University of Wisconsin for South Asian studies, and I applied and got in. It's a great program. And I, I just realized that maybe I needed to kind of reconnect with America and be an American. I was kind of a little too in love, I thought, with South Asia and the, and the whole ideas mm-hmm. and philosophy there. And it's amazing. It's beautiful. And I haven't let that go. But um, it was a point at which I was like, you know, I also really like writing. And that's yeah. when I went back to, to grad school and did a master's at University of Central Oklahoma. And that was cool. kind of the start of that career track. Great. And Chad? Um, hmm. So, <clears throat> well, when I was younger, I always loved stories. My my dad would tell the most amazing stories. Mm-hmm. So we, we would go to Grand Lake in the summers. They had a little cabin there. And, and he would tell the story of the Titanic, and it would be three hours long. He would tell a three... Movie. Yeah, just like the movie. I think Cameron based the screenplay on Lee Reynolds' <laughs> okay. version of the event. But yeah, it was amazing. He would, we would pull out of our driveway, and the story would start, and it would end miraculously as we were pulling into the driveway wow. at our lake house in Ketchum, Oklahoma. So and that, he told that story like a hundred times, and we never got tired of it. <clears throat> and so from an early age, I just remember being struck by stories their power to entertain and educate and delight and surprise and then I mean there's tons of examples of of stories doing that in my in my childhood at the lake there was this recurring uh, horror story that my dad would tell and it involved <laughs> we had these steps that would lead mysteriously into the lake mm-hmm. Ket- uh, Grand Lake is a man-made lake yeah. In the town of Ketchum used to be down in this valley and then when they built the lake they had to move it up mm. to higher ground because the old town got flooded so that's a fact but <laughs> the stairs going down into the lake did not in fact lead down to the graveyard of the old town of Ketchum <laughs> <laughs> I subsequently learned in late, later in my life but we so like last year, <laughs> like last year. So he would tell this story about this, this you know, this like loner, this outsider that tended to the cemeteries, and and he, and then the pets started to disappear, and mm. you know, it, you know where it goes. Next mm. thing you know, yeah. he gets herded into this little shack by the townsfolks and the shack burns and he dies or does he and he comes back and then he tries to get little kids and if you hear scratching on your window 
<laughs> Late at night, it might be the undead. And so I, I don't think I ever slept very well at the lake house because I was always listening for the undead. Wow. And he would, in the story, he, he would be sitting with his back facing the water, and lo and behold, he had placed a couple of rocks down on the first step. Oh, no. And he would end the story right at the right at the absolute climax. He would reach behind him, and, and this was you know in front of a fire that was on the little landing. And he would throw a rock into the water, and nice. you'd hear the splash, and he'd turn around and, and scream. And then when that <laughs> happened, every time the kids would just <laughs> scurry up That's the hill great. and just so so that was that was great. So I always loved stories. I loved like story of Dracula. I mm -hmm. loved nursery rhymes. Humpty Dumpty was my favorite. Um, and and then um, what I wanted to do though when I when I started to think about it was I wanted to be an architect. Uh, I just loved buildings and cities and places like that. M made environments. Like at what age did you want to be an architect? What? At what age did you oh, be an architect? Uh, middle school and high school. Yeah, that, okay. yeah. So um, but then, but I couldn't draw. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, how am I going to be an architect if I can't draw? Like, mm -hmm. I'm okay, but I'm not really good. Like some of my friends who could draw really detailed pictures, and I didn't want to learn how to do that. I just I didn't want to put in the work to do that. And mm -hmm. I was pretty good at math, but I didn't think I was good enough to be an architect. And so. I just really liked English. I liked reading books and writing essays and telling stories. So that that earlier love kind of got me through high school, I'd say, and I thought of myself as a reader and a writer. And then in college, I didn't really have a guiding career desire or aspiration. I found mm -hmm. myself graduating. Oh, I... I, I was a double major in English and Medi Medieval and Renaissance Studies. Okay, cool. So why Medieval and Renaissance Studies? That's because what I it, studied too. Really? Yeah, because yeah, it was great stories mm. around how humans lived and how, uh, you know, and, and, how they, and how they told the world about themselves and their beliefs. So I was really into medieval art. And Wait, I thought they were living in pigsties and just drawing the same shit over and over again. Yeah, they were. They <laughs> That's were. what you said earlier. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so confused. Which which medieval uh, trope am I supposed to buy here, Mr. Both. Rose? Okay. Yeah, they were both. And what helped them get out of the pigsty is art. Yeah, when mm -hmm. Alberti helped them show that there's a different way of living they could they couldn't read but they could see altarpieces mm -hmm. right and so the altarpieces showed them a different version of reality and i think that that's kind of now what i think about with respect to short order poems and penny candy books this mm -hmm. company i founded because if you show people a different version of reality then they mm -hmm. start to see what's possible yeah when you limit what you show them then their their ideas of what's possible is limited yeah. Uh, and you, that happened with medieval art and as it turned into renaissance art and, and I think it's true today mm -hmm. so that was a good uh, turn by the way yeah awesome volta <laughs> yeah awesome volta yeah uh, and on the spot uh, it just, like temporized so extremely <laughs> I didn't even see it coming yeah like, whoa anyway now we're actually talking about what ostensibly we came here to talk yeah. about yeah doing my job for me man 
That'll be ten dollars. I got a, I got a question though because I met your father. Where did he get the love of storytelling? Yeah, interesting. Let me think about that. It seems like you really had a knack for it. Yeah, it seems like it was it's oh, like theatrical. It's, it's real. Theatrical bug. You know, the yeah. way you, you told it. it he, seems like he's got this. So his dad was a doctor and okay. wanted him to be a doctor. Right, right. And it's a good he did, way to get someone to not be a doctor. Right. right. His dad was in commercial insurance. <laughs> yeah. And he's retired now, right? He's retired, yeah. but he did, he, he did it very well because right. he could tell a story about why you needed commercial insurance <laughs> and and if, and and it was like big big stuff that involved when things went wrong they went wrong spectacularly they would blow up and people would get injured those are the kinds of things he was insuring like yeah. oil wells or huh. wind turbines or power plants so <laughs> he would start out you see that See those stairs over there? You know where that leads to? Yeah. That leads to the burnt out rooms. No. I mean, it's... it's <laughs> the oil well that wasn't insured. Yeah. No, it's for real. You should have seen him do his thing when he was when oh, he was in, in his this. height of this stuff. He would, he would sell insurance by telling stories. And the people across the, the table from him would lap this shit up. And it wasn't fake. It wasn't like fiction. It was... He would bring these the stories of losses to life in such a vivid, compelling way mm-hmm. that 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 like their that his competitor, like Mister, you know, analytical numbers yeah. guy, could not, and it yeah. was an unfair advantage. That's I mean cool. he that's had a, the power of storytelling, power of yeah. the narrative. Yeah. And so yeah. when and I ended up working for his company for a while, um, and have just quit to focus on Penny Candy Books. Mm-hmm. But so I was a teacher for nine or ten years and then I was an insurance salesman for eight years and I too felt like I had a bit of an unfair advantage Mm -hmm. because I had spent all this time looking at poems and teaching kids about poetry which is a very obscure uh, you know almost esoteric thing to do because it's just words and it's abstract and you know no one really buys what you're saying to them about the power of poetry Mm -hmm. if you lecture at them so yeah. when you're teaching poetry, you have to engage and by asking questions and coming at it at a kind of slant angle. Mm-hmm. And then I found myself trying to sell insurance, and I had to use those same skills that I had developed in teaching to try to sell insurance. I couldn't lecture at someone and say why they ought to buy this thing. Yeah, I couldn't, you know, just I couldn't convince them just by getting really analytical and hoping that they would respond to that logic. I had to engage them by asking questions and I had to mm. use the power of story to kind of bring it to life yeah. and I knew how to do that because of my teaching and because of seeing my dad do mm. his thing so yeah I, I don't know I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate in that my dad always said hey you know you can do whatever you want to do mm-hmm. uh, and, and he was an English major and that had founded this company and was very successful. So I wanted, so when I wanted to be an English major and I found myself drawn to stories, it wasn't like, well, damn it, you need to get a business degree so you can join my company. It was mm-hmm. like, great, go. Go be an English major. Go be a medieval and renaissance studies major. Ultimately, if you want to wind up in business, it's going to do you, it's going to do you uh, uh, very, yeah. it's going to do you well. It's going to do you good. It's world gonna, of good. It's going to do you a world of good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that, that, that was something I'm very thankful of that. Now I've got that I've worked in insurance. I know how to put together spreadsheets and think about pro formas and read contracts. Mm-hmm. But I also know 
about the power of story. So I feel yeah. like I've got these two worlds that have merged in, in, great. into my new yeah. my new reality. And it's great. I can kind of see that like narrative, like storytelling is kind of all encompassing. Like, I mean, you mentioned history. Like I hated history when I was a kid. And I like ended up developing a love for it once I came to college because it was presented to me in that way. Like it's a story. It's a narrative. Like you can learn things from it it's not that like analytical yeah. like remember these dates and mm -hmm. i think really you can teach or sell anything with putting that frame on it and so. story tellers are powerful because yeah. who tells the story controls the narrative controls the, the history yeah you know so yeah i mean you get someone up there who has a powerful voice and yeah. can tell uh, a story they might be saying the wrong things about history, yeah. but you're so drawn dynamically to this powerful, charismatic voice yeah. that, hell, it sounds great. It yeah. sounds like gospel truth. And I think about Washington and Lee, where I went to college, undergrad. They had a Civil, civil War course. There was an amazing, dynamic Southern teacher there who ended the Civil War course, the history of the Civil War. He ended it at... Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Hmm. <laughs> Just stopped in 19, uh, 1863. <laughs> what, hap what happened after wasn't part of the course. Are you serious? I'm serious. And, wow. and, and that is so that, but But I never took that course, but right. the people who took that course were like, just the guy could tell a story and mm -hmm. so they come away with a skewed sense of the south one <laughs> yeah a skewed sense of the love the history of that war oh and, and, and wow you mentioned this gospel truth i mean that kind of like harkens back to i mean studying doing religious studies i mean what is that it's storytelling sure sure yeah i mean uh yeah. my you know it's funny because i was thinking you know his interest in in writing and story and you know i connected with that early on too it was always a, a at least a, a side interest if not something I was pretty uh, interested in and, and I had a great high school English teacher and that was probably ninth grade when I really really connected with reading mm -hmm. and writing so it was always there kind of in the background and, uh, but the the narratives out of um, Hinduism and Buddhism are, mm -hmm. are for my my money are, are you know, incredible yeah. they're so wonderful the stories of Hanuman all of the deities in the Hindu pantheon, you know, mm -hmm. we were, my sister just brought up a little sculpture of um, uh, Ganesh, the, the uh, elephant-headed yeah. uh, deity, and we were talking about the narrative behind how he got an elephant head, you yeah. know, as the son of Shiva, and he got his head cut off in the, by Shiva's wife because she came home and thought it was, um, no, no, Shiva came home and thought, uh, Parvati had, brushed dust off her body as she was bathing and it turned into Ganesh, mm -hmm. the son. And Shiva came home and he's like, wait, who's this guy in mm -hmm. the bathroom with my wife? And he cuts his head off. Yeah. And Parvati's like, that was your son. And she runs and finds the, the nearest head she could find. It was an elephant. An and she grabs an elephant's head and brings it back and puts it on Ganesh's body. Okay. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous in many yeah. ways, but it's also so fantastical and engaging and, and, and yeah. yeah, wild and so different than all of the mythology I had encountered um, yeah. around Christianity. On and, the other hand, it's whatever. got the dust thing, and you know, man was made sure. out of dust and God's sure. image, and this mm -hmm. whole idea of taking a part of somebody else, the mm -hmm. rib, and, Adam and it Eve. becoming some yeah. some new entity. Sure. Those sure. those are similarities. Oh, and yeah. I love that dust thing, like, like. 
children are just the dust <laughs> that you brush <laughs> off of yourself. Off. If, you're, if you're Paravati, that's, yeah. uh, that's how it works. So, yeah, I was always fascinated by those stories. And, and um, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, certainly stories play a huge role. And the Rinpoche, the, the teacher who really in some ways is supposed to rank above the Buddha, you know, your, your allegiance to your Rinpoche is such that you would do anything. And there's... Mm-hmm very problematic elements of that, but they, a good Rinpoche is often a very, very good storyteller. Yeah. You know, and they'll tell stories for instruction and whatnot. That's great. Yeah. So how did you two, kind of merging it into short order poems, how did you two become connected and how did that kind of start? We've told this story a lot. <laughs> Maybe we should do it a little differently because okay. I know Chad is a huge uh, lover of, of sci-fi. And I'm not, I'm not so not that I'm against it, but um, yeah, he's against. No, I'm not against. It. I'm not against it. He I, I had a, a I had a, a revelation about sci-fi recently, and that, that was it. <laughs> when I was younger, I found it kind of. I found it. I didn't understand that it was, you know, telling alternative fantastical reality for a purpose. That it's like uh, a thought experiment. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I did on some level, but I just found it really like kind of ham-fisted. I was like, yeah. you know, why not just write good solid fiction like Hemingway, like yeah. real, realism, or Zola, <laughs> Emile Zola, you want to change the world, right? like Emile Zola. Mm. Um, but I think I've come around to, to really appreciate that. And I just read Neuromancer, actually. Oh, uh, I've Gibson's. never read Neuromancer. And it just blew my mind. William Gibson? So, yeah, I just picked it up at Commonplace Books, and uh, written in 1984. Uh, he just does a couple little things, like coins the term cyberspace and the matrix. A couple little things. In that book. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's considered kind of... Um, yeah, it's, it, and it, it really was a great, great, great read. So I'm really okay. sympathetic to this. So maybe we can tell uh, how we met the sci-fi version. Wait, okay, hold on. Before before we do that, I agree. Let's okay. do it. But the, the, the next read is Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, okay. which came after Neuromancer and is like, people point to that as maybe uh, a vision of the internet before the internet existed. It's hmm. a super cool book. It came before Neuromancer. No, no, it came after Neuromancer, but before the internet. Okay. Before the the internet as we know it today. Well, I mean, but but the yeah, okay. So similar. It was published in like 1989 or 1988 or something. So after Gibson's Neuromancer. Yeah, yeah. But similar in in that it it predicts some of the things and coins some of the things that we, we use today. Yeah, it is mind-blowing when you read that book, 84, you know, I mean, I guess there were like the beginnings in the defense world of, of connecting computers up and having something like a network, right? Mm-hmm. But he, he was, I mean, he envisions the whole bloody thing, and he has the Matrix. I mean, the, the movie The Matrix is based off his wow. vision of, of jacking into the Matrix, is the term he uses. You jack into the Matrix, and then you consciousness is part of this virtual reality. And, uh, wow. God, it's so visionary. So... Uh, with that in mind, okay. uh, let's see. Uh, the sci-fi version. Yeah. Okay. You go first. <laughs> no, yeah, this is going to work. All right, so. In a bleak... Oh, I'm totally putting music over this. In a bleak, in a bleak time when humans are disconnected, each toiling alone in rooms without windows, one man... <laughs> believed naively in the power of words to to help others see the truth and this man wrote poems 
This man wrote these poems desperately wanting to connect with other people. And he had moved recently from one war-torn region of the country to the next to reestablish life after the apocalypse. And knowing that he was in this new region of the country, he reached out to another poet he had heard of uh, from that region. Uh, and he sent him a cyber message called an email. <laughs> and that cyber message seemed to have been dislodged somewhere or got it got stuck somewhere in the ether for this man this poet never heard back from the other poet <laughs> for a whole year and and little did he know that i actually um i actually was part of the matrix at that point um and therefore i wasn't <laughs> checking my email i was just simply you know just buzzing around in the matrix feeding horses and dogs and shopping and taking care of children and teaching, I guess, and busy doing lots of domestic matrix-like tasks. And here's the thing, though. The first poet was also stuck in his own matrix. What we've learned is that each of us has our own matrix. There is no matrix. There are matrices. Your matrix is different from my matrix, which is different from his matrix. We're each stuck in our own little routine. And my routine, this man's routine, was to, to think that these words, these poems, could impact others. And he wasn't sure if they were. Were they really words in poems? or was it, I thought it was coding you were doing. Weren't yeah, you doing was, coding? It was a binary. Using, it was yeah. binary. X is no, you were using, you're using a, a thing called a alpha... Alpha, no, no, alphabet. Oh yeah, you, uh, it was this thing he yeah, invented, the yeah. alphabet. Yeah, there were a series of symbols, <laughs> words that represented on sounds. A page. Yeah, uh, I, it was a supposedly. I told everyone it was an ancient form of communication, but I had really come up with it on my own. Uh, okay, um, and which explains why no one really understood what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, our, our matrices met, and uh, despite the fact that I m missed this email, or, or ha actually, in all honesty, had seen it, and hadn't, <laughs> hadn't truth responded. Is out. Yeah, you know, it's one of those, I have a bad habit of, like, getting an email and going, oh, I'll, I'll write back, and then I get super busy, and then it gets yeah. buried in the pile, right? So finally, our matrices met, and we recognized this common love for using this, this code called words and uh, putting those words together into another code called a poem to try and reach out to those people stuck in their rooms um, thinking they're all separate even though they might be feeling connected via the internet. We wanted to connect with them in a kind of old-fashioned analog sort of way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward to um, 2014, That's, that was the future in yeah. relation to when we first met, <laughs> yeah. that was the future, okay. but now it's the past. Days okay. of future past. Yes. Okay. By the so 2014 <laughs> at um, <laughs> Elemental Coffee Shop. And Brian... Which is Spanish for the Lamental. Yes. <laughs> when people get together and bemoan their faith. Yes, the copy of Lament. <laughs> and uh, there was a, a seer there named Brian Bergman. Uh, and we were throwing Ex-keyboardist for the Charlie Hall band. <laughs> <laughs> we were throwing around ideas 
about how to use this crazy code called words and poems um, to foster uh, connection in Oklahoma City. And Chad had a friend in, in Chicago, another war-torn region. Uh, yeah, I don't know if Chicago still exists to this day. But... Uh, we don't know. We, we haven't heard from her in a long time. And she had started a group called Poems While You Wait, where they typed poems on, on this. And this is where it gets really cyberpunk. And it really does. Steampunk almost. <laughs> Steampunk. Yeah. On a typewriter, a manual typewriter. It was this ancient this device. Ancient you know, yeah. sort you, of technology. Yet no electricity. What? No electricity all. needed. All you need is this machine. This so it's heavy, kind of a dystopian. Clunky. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a dystopian. It's, it's, like, it's like Kim Stanley Robinson's yeah. The Wild Shore, where this band of survivors has to scavenge uh tools left over from the old dispensation right so we scavenge <laughs> these tools we have no one who knows how to use them no one who can help us yeah, no industry really properly so. there's nobody in oklahoma city who can main who can do maintenance on a typewriter yeah nobody we not even the state of oklahoma did we, you guys know how to before no. so you had to learn we had to learn we, we had to we had to take a very great. perilous journey down into the state of Texas, 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 and it's a big, <laughs> it's were, a big southern state. Marauding cannibal bands, and yeah, there's everyone is out to get you, or get, just they look out for themselves mm. there. They don't care about you. Is what it boils down to. Adult bookstores yeah. on the highway, on the highway. Yeah. Yeah. But there was this man there with tell. a mustache, <laughs> and he he had salvaged many of these old machines and had forged. A kind of identity as an expert in these machines so we mm. consulted with him and he helped teach us he mentored us he was our obi-wan kenobi uh-huh. uh, and he taught us the way of the typewriter and so now we we kind of know how to do it although well, one of us does this guy <laughs> although <laughs> if we're comparing it to star wars we're right about we're right after the new hope <laughs> and i need to go to the dagobah system to study with yoda because okay. we really learn yeah. really become become a master a, a master that's so true that was actually much later so so backing up to that moment with brian bergman uh who is a seer of ideas i don't know if you've met him but he is, mm-hmm. is a really wonderful idea person and he's like that is awesome we're doing this thing called h and eighth which is a street festival yeah. for for vendors to bring their goods together and back bar- when people could congregate in public without Barter fear system. of uh, reprisal oh, from- before the new the new regime came yeah. in yeah <laughs> And he said, if you guys can get together these uh, antiquated machines and uh, make this happen, then we'll put you right on the corner of H&A. And so that happened. And 2014, March 2014, we sat down and we typed on those typewriters till our fingers bled, as that song goes. And uh, really for four hours straight, we typed. And people, at first it was like family members coming by, I remember. Um, But then after that, quickly after that, it was... uh, Lots of other people, and that's the thing: is the sound of these machines. It, they're yeah. so interesting. We should have so brought amazing. one. That was yeah, we really, epic yeah, fail. Yeah. We should have brought a typewriter and penny candy books yeah. to show off how beautiful they are. But uh, maybe we can, we can swing by later. You could get a sound bite or something. Yeah, but um, yeah, the sound of the machines alone it really brings people in because yeah. it is so much out of the past. And, yeah. it, and you know, I mean, we're we're we. This is a sci-fi story, but I think it really does connect up with that other reality uh, that maybe we are living in or maybe we're not of, of this world and uh, the fact that people are, you know, and we're in this age where people are really drawn to the analog, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the fact that everything is so glossy and virtual. And yeah. so 
It was a huge success right away, and right away we realized, man, we have so much demand, we need guest uh, coders uh, in on this experiment <laughs> to, to create this greater matrix of, of short order poems. Mm -hmm. And so we invited two people in the next time out in April. So it was every month we were doing uh, H&H, this, uh, this street festival, and, and we invited in um, Victoria McWhorter and, and Melody Charles from Tulsa, both came down, and then mm -hmm. the next one after that, I think we had four guest poets, and so that whole first season, we just kind of kept building it and building it. And, and I think the with each with each additional guest poet, we had to find an additional typewriter. Typewriter that, <laughs> that worked, that worked, that would yeah. hold together. And I mean, some hilarious things happened with the typewriters at times. And, and A June like, bug flew into my beloved Hermes three thousand, and it turning, leading me to have a kind of downward spiral anxiety fit. It well, it, it for rightfully so because it turned out it wasn't a June bug; it was actually a drone, a miniaturized drone ah. that had been sent by oh, the, the powers that be that yeah. were trying to yeah. to mess with our, our system. But you know, we I defeated it. it. I, I got, it. I dislodged it. I you dislodged it. it. Did you did you smash it after that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then I well, and then I studied it. Uh, so reverse engineered it. So um, so that was the first year and. We started getting invites from other festivals and things, so uh, we branched out and did things like uh, the Film Row Festival mm -hmm. or the, the Nights on Film Row. We've done that one. Uh, oh, we've done a ton of things. It's always hard to remember. Yeah, we got invited to Our, weddings, which we have. We, we, we've never done a wedding. We've never done actually. a wedding, but we've been invited to several, and we've hmm. always had to turn it down because of scheduling conflicts. Yeah, yeah. We We've done art moves. We've done... Yep. We've several done. events with the Oklahoma Contemporary, mm -hmm. uh, which just did one recently called The Art of Brunch. <laughs> We're currently posting poems from that. Uh, yeah, that fact, was an amazing event because it was it was this Saturday that was so hot and humid and mm -hmm. easy. It was unbelievable. Tim, Tim was posted outside. one yesterday. Yeah, can I read it? Yeah. It's mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a self-promotion. <laughs> but uh, it's called The Art of the Brunch. So since you mentioned it, I'll read it. This poem was inspired by Alfred Starr Hamilton, mm -hmm. who's a he was a real outsider poet. He was a librarian. He lived in a one-room apartment most of his life. He barely got by, um, and was never trained formally in how to write poetry. And uh, he he published one book in his life, but he wrote a bunch. And these guys who run a press called the Song Cave, they got permission from his brother or something to hmm. publish his collected. And so he Go he writes a lot. He uses, you'll hear me say, I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to. He A lot of his poems have that trope, and he uses this repetition, this, this repetition called anaphora, where you start the lines, successive lines, with the same word or phrase. Hmm. He uses that to, a lot. So I had been reading him, and I had been thinking about him when I wrote this poem. Before he reads it, I just want to say, give the listeners a context for this, outside of the, 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 <laughs> the sci-fi trope or however <laughs> you want to take it. Um, so, you know, Short Order Poems basically writes poems in this fancy code called words, on demand, yeah. in 15 or 20 minutes, in public venues, on manual typewriters, for price ranging anywhere from uh, free if we're being paid by the event organizers like Oklahoma Contemporary mm -hmm. to as little as $5 to as much as sometimes $20 if it's a benefit or something like this. Yeah. We, we found that you know charging something 
makes people have a little skin in the game, make sure they come back for the poem. Yeah. It makes them take it a little more seriously. If you just write them for free, which we've done a couple times, people a lot of times will just not come back and yeah. pick it up. And, you know, it's they, studies they, have shown. They think it um, doesn't mean anything. So that's our gig is people come up and they give us a topic, right? They say, I want a poem about breakfast or mm. my dog's Sony or uh, Sonny or, uh, 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 or, uh, or my dog's Sony. My dog's Sony cassette player, yeah. my <laughs> Sony Walkman, yeah. or tr Truth and Beauty, or my grandchildren. Yeah. Or, so there's kind of an improv element. Soggy Socks, well. or Russell Westbrook, or you know, I'm trying to think of all the different crazy orders we've gotten. Uh, you know, Menage a Trois. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Swingers. My Menagerie. Uh, you know, the uh, word shit. My Adidas. The word, the word shit. shit. Uh, you know, great. all sorts of crazy things. And Cabbage. our job as poets is to take their ideas and in 15 or 20 minutes encode them in this amazing thing called language, um, this technology called language, um, and, and create something that we hope pleases them, but also doesn't pander to them too much in the sense of we want to mm. surprise them, we want to open yeah. up new vistas, show them there might be other ways of thinking about how language works and how right. reality works too. Right, so the, the danger is that you might produce a hallmark card poem mm -hmm. right that just is a very direct transparent embrace of the sentiment behind the topic mm -hmm. love you can just write something that's super treacly and drippy and sappy and you know we have done that a few times yeah. but it's always more interesting to try to <clears throat> infuse a little bit of yourself in there and not undermine any commission but um take it in an in, in your own direction mm -hmm. um and so the good ones the good poems that that we've written do that they we meet we meet the patron kind of halfway but it's not like a direct line maybe it's mm -hmm. halfway at a at an angle yeah. <laughs> somewhere else <laughs> that we don't expect yeah. um and it's always a bit of a surprise for us and the patron when yeah. we do it like that um so this one was for the organizers of the Art of the Brunch. They were the organizers, so they gave me the topic, the Art of the Brunch, and this was one where I was like, oh boy, what do we do with this one? You know, we've, they've just paid us to come here. Mm -hmm. So do I just give them what they want to hear, or do I kind of take it in a different direction? I, I don't know. So this is where, when we write these poems, we always have to be reading other poets to, mm -hmm. to think about how we get through an order. We want to see how, although I call them poetic moves. What are the moves that we tend to make over and over? What moves do other poets make? How can we always just broaden the moves that we have in our repertoire to become better poets to get through the moment? And so I had been reading Alfred Starr Hamilton, and I, I just, just, I don't know, I just started to think about him in, in relation to this topic, the art of the brunch. Cool. The art of the brunch for Amy and Lori. I wanted to travel to the moon. I wanted to visit the sun. I felt like sailing on the wind. I could tell abstractions were becoming concrete. I walked alone down a sidewalk. I stepped over a piece of food. Nothing special, just a bit of egg cooking in the sun. I wanted to see in the yoke a sun. I wanted to see in the white a moon. I felt like sailing into tomorrow. I could tell abstractions to be more literal. I could tell art to be more edible, like brunch. 
how potatoes are like ideas, how bread pudding is a feeling. Soft-boiled eggs can be hard words. Poached eggs, preach. The gospel of pancakes, a cathedral of considerations, metaphor for metaphor. I wanted to believe in murals like I did orange juice, a fresco of fears more colorful than fear. I wanted this gravy attitude to last forever. I wanted to travel to a moon of cheese, I wanted to visit a sun egg to somehow become unscrambled. That's great. Yeah, it is a great poem. I mean, um, um, I, I love it for the fact that it does use that anaphora and that it, um, that it embraces the eye, right? Mm. You know, the eye is, a, is an amazing tool and a dangerous tool in poetry. It can become self-serving, navel-gazing, you know, all, all the kind of things you want to, ego-serving ego sort of stuff. Or it can become this amazing kind of point of, of reference where you're looking outward and, and exploring all these vistas. And, you know, I feel like uh, uh, Walt Whitman uses it in that way in amazing ways, and this poem does that too. I'm not familiar with the guy uh, that Chad mentioned. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know his work. Oh, yeah. um, but I also love the fact that it's playing with something that I'm always fascinated by, and that is that language, all language, is not what it purports to be, mm -hmm. right? This is not a table. I mean, as soon as you start learning other languages, you realize there's a 20, Ceci 30, 40... Ceci peep. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that all of languages is displaced, and mm -hmm. it's a system. It's a system of coding, and it works very well, and it it's, can do amazing, amazing things. And, and then you get into the whole, well, can we even perceive the world without language? I personally believe we can. Um, but this poem is starting to get it, tearing yeah. apart, you know, the notion of not just the basic metaphor and simile of poetry, does this work or not? How can we make things more concrete? But it's, it's visionary in that sense of like, how can we make the vision into the reality in some ways? I feel like yeah. there's moves in that poem that are really trying to, to speak to mm. that in a powerful, interesting way. And yet elements of comedy too, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that, and, and to think that Chad did that in 15 or 20 minutes, you know, yeah. and not everything we write is, is that good, but we always say, I always say at least, I think, you know, like about 25% of what we write is pretty, pretty so-so. <laughs> about the middle ground, 50% is like decent, you know, right. like it's, it's close to being something pretty good. And then you get ones like that, I think, yeah. that are, you know, if not finished, I mean, it, it really is pretty close to being a, yeah. a, a finished poem, I think. And, you know, he banged that out in 15 or 20 minutes yeah. in sweltering heat on a manual typewriter. I mean, you know, it's, know. it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it, but it happens because of the situation with this interaction, this matrix of the order that you wouldn't, you know, Chad wasn't going to sit down and write a poem about the art of brunch that morning. He wasn't going to have just eaten a beautiful brunch, courtesy of mm -hmm. the organizers mm -hmm. uh, at mm -hmm. Oklahoma Contemporary, who allowed us to eat the and amazing I brunch. Sure uh, as hell would never sit out in 100 degree weather. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe <laughs> he was starting to yeah. become, you know, the seer, the, the conduit for the yeah. ideas because he was literally melting, you know, his yeah. physical form was was uh, suffering in ways. I mean, not to, so. put, not to put too fine a point on it, but like you think about in ancient Greece the, at the, um, oh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the place right outside of... Uh, the the, the an Oracle. The, the Oracle at Delphi. Delphi. Oh, Thank yeah. You. Delphi. Where, where uh, uh, of course, um, Odysseus meets his father at the... Uh, not Odysseus. Um, 
Oedipus meets his father outside of the crossroads, outside of Delphi. But in real, in, in real life there, there was a woman who sat there on, in this structure right at the base of the mountain, mm-hmm. the Delphic Oracle. And, I mean, there was a kind of deprivation, physical deprivation that happened that, that was cruel on one hand, but also conditioned her to see things and think things that other people weren't because of their comfort levels Mm -hmm. so i mean this is a stupid comparison but (laughs) we were we were we were we were we were we were putting ourselves in a place that 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 most people don't and you don't have to be it doesn't have to be 100 degrees outside in order for that kind of chemistry to happen so some of the poems that we've written that at the h and h iteration of short order poems Mm -hmm. when we were outside in front of 20,000 people at night writing poems. Again, not a typical place to write poems. And a lot of our poems referred to the moon. Why? I didn't realize it until I, until I uh, had a eureka moment. We were outside under right the there. moon. Yeah. It's right there. It became like the central trope yeah. of the poems that I wrote at h and H, And I love that because... I think it's a symbol for what we're doing. The moon reflects the sun of the light down onto earth. All right, and so we're just reflecting some some light about some topic. Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily spewing our own thoughts. Anything that we do is a kind of reflection or a refraction yeah. through an atmosphere down to where other people can see it. Yeah. So I love that trope. Um, Going back to Chad's poem, I mean, yeah, I I would argue that, you know, okay, maybe we're not uh, encountering deprivation to the level of the the oracle at Delphi, but... um, uh, (laughs) He would argue that. But, but, (laughs) no, but but that we are suffering in certain ways that that we're, it it is a little uncomfortable when you're like outdoors in the elements. I mean, we've struggled so many times with heat, with rain, all these things. We're often outdoors on these manual typewriters, which are not easy to work with. You have to learn... How to type, and you can't correct mistakes easily. We Somebody's don't have looking a, over your shoulder. You know, and, and people are interrupting jerks. you and stuff. And you have to put all of that aside. And and I think I just was reading about this amazing poet from L.A. named Will Alexander, and he's he talks about the 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 use of the imagination takes this weird turn with the Romantic poets to become in service of the ego. He believes, and that he sees. Um, kind of pre-romantic poetry where the imagination took you over and mm. you became the conduit for the imagination as his ideal and his poetry is out there it's just crazy mm-hmm. and I think that you know that for me as a poet is, is important that you know I'm not you know like, like the way poetry is taught in grade school use your imagination it's like we, ha- we kind of say that because in some ways it sounds really creepy if you say <clears throat> let the imagination possess you let the spirits come down and yeah. overtake you and but I think that is what happens in some of our best poems is yeah. that you know our ego idea of how we're going to make it work of what do we want it to be about gets obliterated through this interaction with the customer the, the interaction with the nature the environment uh, the atmosphere yeah, there's a lot uh, of the mood we're in all these yeah. factors yeah. that are coming together that are often not as much in play when you're just the normal poet yeah. with your notebook. I mean, they can become in play, but, yeah. you know, oftentimes it's a much more controlled environment that yeah. you're writing in. Well, I think that's the, the beauty of it, just from, like, the perspective of a consumer, like someone coming up and paying you 
$10 to create something for them, like it's never going to be the same piece of work that you create for someone else. Obviously, it's a topic that they give you. And even from someone who isn't educated on poetry per se, like I don't really have any like education or context on what constitutes a good poem or a like mediocre or a subpar poem, but like having something created and given to me, like I still have the poem that you wrote right. for us on the fridge and I look right. at it every single morning. So I think that's really the, from the like customer standpoint, that's the, the beautiful thing yeah. about it. Yeah. Sure. And, and that's the funny thing is that we're, we're judgmental about, you know, the poems we write and, mm-hmm. you know, this and that. But that the reality is almost every customer, I mean, we've yeah. had so few complaints, almost everybody. Yeah. So even if we write something that's, we're like, ah, this one didn't come off so well, but we give it to the customer and often they'll just be like, oh, I love it. Thank you so yeah. much. Because there is that personal connection. Yeah. And, and that's a beautiful thing too, to yeah. just realize, you know, okay, just even trying to use this weird code called yeah, language, this yeah. virus to encode it in a way that speaks to someone, um, even if we judge it a failure or a, something that's so so um, mm-hmm. that it often speaks to people. Yeah, so there's a, the, he mentioned the romantic poets. This would be people like uh, Samuel Taylor, Coleridge, William Wordsworth, William mm-hmm. Blake. This is right around like 1798 through the 1850, 1815, 1820, 1825, 1830. Mm-hmm. John Keats, Percy Bysshe Shelley, those folks. Even uh, Mary Shelley was, you know, she was, she was part of this gang. She wrote Frankenstein. Um, so there's a there's a, a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge called the Aeolian Harp, and the Aeolian Harp came to symbolize what he was talking about. Tim was talking about. It's this instrument that you would put on a windowsill or put outside, and the wind would blow through it and make music. Hmm. And they, the Romantic poets, thought that the Aeolian Harp represented poetry. It it represented the poet poet should aspire to be like the Aeolian harp mm-hmm. you know set yourself out on a windowsill and let the wind blow through you and out out of one end will come poetry mm-hmm. and so in a way we're striving to be the Aeolian harp we're not we're not blocking the wind the wind comes from the patrons comes from the environment comes from the interaction mm-hmm. between us and and the crowds etc uh, to produce a poetry that we wouldn't have expected, mm-hmm. and I and I also think that, um, like su- suffering is an interesting topic because no, you know while while we're sitting out there uh, doing this, it's it's not truly suffering because it's fun, and um, and we may be uncomfortable, but like part of what we encounter. I mean, we're very keenly aware that there's all this suffering in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So because we've been writing poems while Ferguson happened. There's a mm-hmm. poem we wrote about Ferguson because it happened like mm-hmm. a day before one of our H and Eighth events. And there's poems we wrote about the struggle for uh, marriage equality in Oklahoma. And there are poems, not a poem, but poems we've written about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've written poems about uh, you know the rise of Trumpism, and mm-hmm. and so. Um, and racism and and so our little discomfort is a is is a way is in a way us trying to channel the greater discomforts out there and to try to turn it into music or turn it into something 
yeah. people can use after we're gone to kind of think about things. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the joy of this is to try to figure out how to maybe empathize with people yeah. whose situations are, are worse than ours and to convince people whose situations are like ours or are better than ours that there are people out there whose situations are mm -hmm. worse and that are worthy of attention. Yeah. Not to say that we're all writing every one of our poems is like a you know, like a social call to action, mm -hmm. but politics does uh, filter into, yeah. I mean, like almost every poem, it seems like, in some little way. Yeah, sure. By sure. the way, real quick, I just wanted to read one poem by Alfred Starr Hamilton so you could see what, what I was talking about. Okay. This is a short And then I was going to pick one, one. Uh, of mine to read. Yeah. Uh, to add in, and then... Um, and then uh, we should talk about Penny Candy Books yeah, before definitely. we wrap up. Yeah, for sure. for sure. So this is Night by Alfred Starr Hamilton, and it's so strangely appropriate to what we're doing because he mentions typewriter. <laughs> Night. I kept a typewriter. I carried a little dark suitcase around. I asked the proprietor for some or a little space. I was a stranger. I was always moving about. I knew there was lightning on the moon. I hammered golden letters against the wilderness. I hammered golden letters against the night. I held this light to myself. I had so little to say to all the rest. And I just love that because I think about that's what we're trying to do is uh, we know there's lightning on the moon. There isn't lightning on the moon. There's no atmosphere on the moon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Clearly there's no lightning, but we know there's lightning on that moon. And we're going to hammer golden letters against the wilderness. And we're going to hold that light to ourselves. We're doing it a little differently than that. We're then sharing, trying to share that light mm -hmm. uh, to illuminate the wilderness uh, for ourselves. Because every poem we write is a surprise. And we, mm -hmm. we don't know how we're going to get out of it. But also for others. Yeah. That's great. Tim, I'm failing to find. I was looking. I wanted to find a... Way back in 2014, I wrote a poem that uh, had a fair amount of reference to hockey. But, oh, um, oh, here, I've got it. You on know my where it drive. is? I saved it on my drive. Oh, cool. I was going to read that one in honor of your love of hockey. Oh, great. It's, even though it's an oldie, <laughs> it's a goodie. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we, we do... Part, part of the wind that blows through us are those patrons, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, even in Oklahoma... Even though we do get a huge number of grandchildren and dogs and you know very conventional sort of frozen. subject matter, frozen, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Frozen. Uh, that we you know we do have people that walk up and are like you know yeah write a poem about Ferguson or write a poem about this or that or we get ourselves or other poets that have written with us mm -hmm. subtly bringing those things in yeah. you know as a way to expand people's horizons. Okay, you wanted a poem about your grandchild, but have you thought about how your grandchild is different than other people's grandchildren might be more privileged, or you know, very subtle ways things get mm -hmm. woven into uh, that's great. the dialogue. So that's really cool. The world. All right, <laughs> this is for you, Brad, for the, and for the penguins. <laughs> Icing. Hockey players aren't like you and me. I stole that from a friend who stole it from a children's book on hockey. Hockey itself was stolen from the Iroquois. And the best goalies are said to pick the pockets of the players whose best shots they snatch from the indoor rink's air. 
Some go for the fights. Some go for the skating and passing. Few go to pickpockets because hockey fans aren't very gullible or passive. Consider the fact that they have started fistfights with players in the penalty box. Consider that they're there for the fights and skating and passing. Consider that the announcer may say, by the look of things, I'd say that's a jugular, as the ice is sprayed with the blood of someone enough like you and me to bleed profusely if wounded in certain ways. But he survived and the game went on. Hockey players aren't like anything else, but somehow we relate and root and forgive the beautiful bloody mess. That's great. Yeah. Love that. Somehow we relate and root and forgive the beautiful bloody mess. Nice ending. And you know, like, he he couldn't have predicted that he would end that poem that way. Like, he didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. We don't chart our courses beforehand. We always yeah. just get lost yeah. in each poem that's good and then find our way out. That's great. Um, Do you know the jugular reference? The, there was a... Yeah. The, I, I forget who it was, but, you know... Um, one of the goalies caught a skate yeah, in the, the neck. Panthers. And, and yeah, and they, and they get the towel out there, yeah. and I mean, the blood is just yeah. And the announcer literally says, yeah. by the look of things, I'd say that's the jugular. Yeah. <laughs> but he says it so dry. He's like, yeah. from the look of things, I'd say that's a jugular. And they're just like, oh, dear Lord. Like, yeah. Why are you not screaming and crying for this that poor man? And that for me to... somehow, like, you know, said something yeah. about hockey. You know? Yeah. Like, and that happened again, like, a few years ago. Like, yeah. And probably more than that, like, seven yeah. or eight years ago. But it was, like, an even more freak thing. Like, someone flew up in the air, mm-hmm. and a foot caught someone in the yeah. neck. And then the guy, who it, it, he did it to his own teammate. Oof. Like, obviously, it was not on purpose. But that guy was, like, never the same. He was, like, an all-star player and then just, like, couldn't. Oof. But it was the same type of thing. Like, the announcer is just sorry. Sir, sir. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to kind of draw things in and kind of what I like to do at the end is kind of look forward. And mm-hmm. I mean, I just like to hear kind of your guys' thoughts and aspirations for short order poems, kind of looking into the future, but also separately what what the two of you kind of aspire for looking down the line. And I know that we want to talk about Penny Candy Books a little bit so we can start off sure. with, with you, Chad. Yeah, so I, I have started a new company called Penny Candy Books. It's a children's book publishing company. I co-founded it with a poet named Alexis Orgera. She lives in Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. She was a short order poems guest poet oh, great. back in 2015, April of 2015. She was coming from Portland, Oregon to Savannah and stopped in Oklahoma City. I had known her in graduate school, so I I told her, hey, you got to stop here while you're making your road trip Mm -hmm. to the short order poems thing with us. She did. And while she was, she was at, uh, she she stayed at our house. And while she was there, we we got to talking about books, children's books from other countries. Mm -hmm. I had just gotten back from a work trip in Europe and had purchased a few children's books uh, in Germany and France. And I, and I just noticed that there tend there tended to be it seemed to me a different tone in the books uh, in France and Germany the books written for kids mm-hmm. they just a less of a pandering tone a willingness to engage in more difficult subjects and there's a famous German book called um, uh, <laughs> 
what the hell poopers. Is swan, <laughs> swan, skeleton, and death. Huh. I think is what it's called. It's by Wolf Erbrook, and he won a lot of awards for it. But it's a very simple, poetic way of talking about death, hmm. and and not in a like uh, a way that skirts the hard topic, but in, directly engages it. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. I mean, in 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 um, you see that in the Grimm's fairy tales, yeah. right? And you see it in Hans Christian Andersen's work, and you yeah. you know you see it in 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 the stories that we've been telling kids for the longest time. Yeah. But sometime sometime around the latter half of the eighteen hundreds, you know, kids started be- to become this precious commodity mm-hmm. that should be cherished and coddled, which is true, because kids were being you know killed in factories. There were no child labor laws mm-hmm. back then. And so, yes, I'm not saying that kids should be uh, killed in factories, but <laughs> what I'm saying is that... It's on the record. On the record. <laughs> but that uh, the stories that we have come to tell children um, are disappointing in some ways. Battery? Oh, no. I, was, I forgot the silencing. Sorry, go on. And so um, we... Um, we started to talk about all this, and she said, well, I've always wanted to have a book publishing company called Penny Candy. And so Penny Candy Books was born, and we, we wanted to publish books that represented the best of children's storytelling. Um, so our focus was on trying to get books from other countries and publishing them here. Mm-hmm. And then as we brainstormed for what we could do, we, we realized that... Um, this was right around the time that we heard of we need diversebooks.org an organization that was founded in 2015 to, to to bring awareness to the fact that there's a, a quote diversity gap in children's book publishing hmm. so as we learned about we need diverse books we learned that there's a, a publisher called Lee and Lowe and every year they make an infographic on diversity in children's book publishing and the, the statistics they use are from the Children's Cooperative Book Center at the University of Wisconsin, and they study the books that are published each year hmm. for children. Um, and it, it turns out that over the past 21 years, uh, on average, 11% of the books published for children each year are about, uh, contain multicultural content. Wow. Meanwhile, like this this year, 37% of the population of the United States is uh, comprised of people of color. This yeah. man knows of what he speaks. I'm looking at the infographic yeah. right now, <laughs> he and he's spot on. So yeah. the thing is, there's a gap there between supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's even crazier, the one that really brings it home is uh, 6% of, black, uh, of children's books uh, published in 2016 were written by Black, Latino, and Native American authors. So, so the, there's already a diversity gap of you know eleven yeah. percent compared to thirty-seven percent of the population. Yeah. Huh. And then some of those books are actually books written by white authors, yeah. which it doesn't discount them. It's just like why not have the, uh, the story, the yeah. narrative told yeah. by the person who yeah. lived it? It's this, just it, insane to it, think about it not being that way. It is, and yet obviously it is. And when you look at 6% compared to 37, it's just, it, that's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And, and then you start to figure out why, and there are all sorts of reasons that get beyond money, um, uh, but ultimately maybe point to money. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you can talk about you can talk about the history of racism in this country. You can talk about lending practices in this country that have led to a inordinate amount of whites uh, owning real estate versus blacks, Latinos, uh, and people of color in this country. Because in, especially with respect to African Americans, you just the road to buying a house in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s was really exceedingly difficult. Commercial banks didn't want to loan you money to buy a house. So how do you build equity? Uh, and then you talk about the history of sharecropping and the Jim Crow laws. I mean, it's just everything has conspired against African Americans in this country. Um, and so maybe that plays into to it. Uh, I don't know, but we we um, we decided we wanted to try to create a platform for, for people in this country to tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. And the work that we need diversebooks.org has done has shown us that it's really important for you as a child to see someone who looks like you in the books that you read. Because yeah. that widens your uh, scope of possibilities like yeah. we talked about earlier. If you see, if you're a little black kid and you see a black astronaut in a book, now yeah. all of a sudden you know, oh, wow, I could be an astronaut too because there's a kid that looks like me. Mm -hmm. And if you're a white kid, you need to see a black astronaut in the book to know that a black boy can be an astronaut yeah. too. It helps develop empathy. It helps you prepare for the real world, which is one of diversity. 37% of the people of this country are people of color, and that's only going to grow in yeah. the next 20 years. White people will be the minority in this country. Mm -hmm. Let me interject real quickly. Not only important for kids, obviously, but... I had a really profound experience. I'll, I'll try and make this short. Sure. Um, uh, with the Kehinde Wiley Wiley show, I was there for Tiffany's uh, yeah. talk. Oh, you were. It was awesome. Tiffany McKnight, who uh, Chad will tell you a little more about. She's a, uh, a local illustrator, uh, mm -hmm. artist, uh, uh, graphic designer, yep. and um, African American woman. And Willa Johnson, uh, African American uh, county commissioner in in Oklahoma City, and they both sat on this panel mm -hmm. in front of uh, one of the beautiful paintings in the show down at the Oklahoma City uh, uh, Museum of, of Art yeah. uh, by Kehinde Wiley, which is he's a uh, African American Nigerian heritage African American artist who paints these amazing, amazing portraits of people that he selects off the streets. Hmm. Uh, all African-American, or at least in this show, most of them are, mm -hmm. um, and then puts them into Renaissance um, portrait uh, hmm. postures and, and puts them into uh, the, these amazing ornate backgrounds. And one of the things, to, to it's an amazing show, everyone should go see it uh, who's listening to this and in the area, you know, I highly recommend it. Um, but the, the two main things, or the, the one main thing that both Tiffany and, and Willa said was, um, it is so powerful for me to come into a gallery and see in every single piece somebody who looks like me. Mm -hmm. It's so power. It's such a powerful moment for me yeah. because so often the experience is other. Um, that that you know, and they, and they were just talking about how, yeah. how affirming that was. And I and I think we also talked about the fact that it was powerful for white people to come in yeah. and see a gallery that's all African Americans yeah, yeah. and go. You know, and you could see some people kind of coming in during the talk that were, looked a little confused. They're like, yeah. oh, everybody in all the paintings is black. Why is that? You know, and you, yep. and then you suddenly realize, wow, that's the experience of a lot of African-Americans yeah. going to your contemporary art and, and for the parents of a white child reading a book, 
to their kids. Sure, sure. So back to that, creating yeah. empathy on both sides, or, right? Or you know, empowering and creating empathy through books. Yeah, and I think our our struggle, speaking uh, on the theme of your um, oh yeah, struggles. webcast yeah, podcast, how do people struggle? Well, our our struggle is to try to figure out how to convince someone to buy a book that's going to basically revolutionize their child's thinking. <laughs> you know, like, so the book uh, that we, we published called The Hunt by French illustrator Margot Ota. No words, just pictures, beautiful book, hardcover, interesting format. It's got a so-called German spine, so that the spine yeah, is on the top. I saw it on the website. It's interesting. And it's great. It's, a, it, it's great, but a lot of people around here might think it's a little too, uh, you know, a little too... Dangerous, mm-hmm. because because it features the story of a little girl who's making some art. And we all like girls that make art, right? But then some dudes come down and they shoot her art with guns. Nobody likes that. That's you know that's violence. But everyone likes their guns. Second Amendment, right? Mm-hmm. You know. But these guys are clearly not wielding the guns in a very responsible way. And the little girl then gathers up all the bits and makes a slightly bigger sculpture. It's out of stone. Yeah, stone. She's making stone a sculpture out of stone. On the, on the beach. And the guys come back and they blow it to bits, to bits again. And it, it continues in this manner until there's a surprise twist. I won't give it away. But suffice it to say, creativity trumps destruction yeah. and violence and aggression and adversity. Mm. So the book is about grit. It's about sticking to... Sticking to your guns, yeah. <laughs> metaphorically speaking, yeah. uh, and and, and it's guns. about how little little girls. You know, I think we're we're starting a PR campaign for this book. Mm-hmm. What is um, this is my hunt, and we hope that um, s- schools and libraries will embrace it. But I think little girls and women will see in that book yeah. their own stories. Yeah. What's a time when some man has told you, you can't do this, yeah. mm-hmm. you shouldn't do that, yeah. don't do this, yeah. and that is your hunt. Um, and, and so we want to create books like that that help little people and their adults figure out how to talk about big topics. And so our motto yeah. is small press, big conversations. Yeah. We want to be a small press because we want to have the flexibility to respond to things yeah. that the bigger presses don't often. And I'll give you an example. Scholastic published a book last year called, well, I don't remember what it was called, but it was about George Washington's slave baking George Washington a cake and being so grateful that he was George Washington's slave. And, and it, that's, that's the, that was the that book. Really got the story. It got last published. Year? It got published last year, and it led to let me outrage. Get, let me guess. The author was... Caucasian. White. White. <laughs> and the, and the yeah. illustrator was black, but oh, seriously, yeah. But but oh, it um, oh. it got pulled off the shelves because it led to outrage, and everyone's it was like, look, yeah, he was George Washington's slave. Slavery still sucks. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he was not free. He might have had in that moment some enjoyment baking a cake, but overall, the dude was a slave. Yeah. He wasn't in charge of his own life. So how that book passed the acquisition editor, (laughs) the content editor, the creative editor, the CFO, and how it made its way to publication is beyond us because we can't can't ever do that. 
we will never write publish a story by a white person on a black person yeah. because if we did we'd lose all of our cred and we yeah. and it's against our mission we want to publish books sure. by people about their own experiences yeah. and not by people about others other people's experiences yeah. and so small press big conversations and we're hoping that our books will will do that we have a lot of great books coming out in the next year and a half we have three books this fall mm -hmm. um, the first one is by a Palestinian poet it's illustrated by a Jordanian artist it won a huge award last year at an wow. international book festival and we're publishing the English version of it it's called great. the blue pool of questions um, I was recently asked at a Kiwanis Club luncheon if we have internal processes to make sure that we don't publish books that could be used for ISIS recruitment. Wow. And this was in Oklahoma. Oklahoma City, white old white man asked me about this. Great. And I was like, <laughs> what? Uh, the blue pool. <laughs> the blue pool is going to recruit your children into ISIS. Wow. But that's kind of how people think, you know? Like, yeah, it really is. Um, yeah. But my response was, yeah, we're not going to do anything stupid. This is our freaking company. Our livelihoods depend on this. We're yeah. not out to brainwash Unless by brainwashing you mean challenging patriarchy, racism, and um, you know, close-mindedness, yeah. and in which case, yeah, if that's America, if that's what America means to you, you're not gonna like our books. <laughs> but I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> I was curious. I was like, man, I wish I'd been there for that. But uh, oh, spicy. And then we have another book coming out about the death of a pet. So, uh -huh. you know, a really cool universal topic. Tim's wife actually blurbed the book. She's a veterinarian who helps families put down their sick pets. Yeah. Um, we have another book about by an Australian woman. It's about kind of, we call it an environmental lullaby. And then in the spring, we have four books coming out. And then in the spring of 2018, and then this, and in the fall of 2018, we have four books coming out. So Great. in the next... I don't know, 18 months, we have 11 books coming out. Wow, and awesome. each one taps into and helps children and their adults navigate some really big, difficult topics and will lead to really good conversations. Okay. And where can people get them? Ah, uh, well, pennycandybooks.com. We have a store. You can order our books from our website. They're also available online at all the online retailers, including okay. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart.com. And then you can buy them at local bookstores. They're available at Commonplace Books, Full Circle Bookstores, Barnes & Noble on North May by Quail Springs Mall has them. If you, if you listeners, live in a city <laughs> that isn't Oklahoma City, and you go to your local bookstore and they don't carry our books, all you got to do is ask them to order our books, and our distributor will... Our distributor makes them available to the two big wholesalers, mm -hmm. um, and all, all, all booksellers can just order our books to those wholesalers. So... Do me a solid and request Penny Candy books. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I, I might be slightly biased because, you know, Chad's a, a colleague and good friend, but um, they're gorgeous. I mean, I really was amazed yeah, when they came out the with this. You know, when he's, website, he, 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 he was amazing. telling me this, they're oh, going to start this, this um, kids press and, and the quality and the, and the mission both are just yeah. phenomenal. So no, I'm really super, super... It's refreshing. Uh, thrilled for him and, and proud of him what Thanks. he's doing. It's it's yeah. really awesome and necessary. Yeah. So well, we it's hope just, we hope we can make it. You know, I mean, it'll be it'll be interesting to yeah. see. But because it's certainly one of those industries, that people are like, "You're doing what?" Yeah. You're, well, oh. it seems to 
even outside of that in all forms of media to gladly to be becoming kind of a trend like you're even seeing it in like Hollywood major Hollywood pictures now where I mean it's a story from a perspective of a woman and the director is yep. a woman like yep. Wonder Woman just came out yep. and people mm-hmm. are going mm-hmm. bananas over it because there's never been a movie at that scale that was worked on by women and it's not like yeah even even from a huge mainstream like superhero like everyone goes to see blockbuster like seeing it from not through the lens of a man looking at a woman yep but even like smaller scale than that in media with shows like master of none from Aziz Ansari oh, yeah, like yeah. he recently did an interview where he talked about Terry Gross interview yeah yeah where I he talked that. about he did an episode have you have you watched the show no, have I, either of you seen that yep. episode he had Not an episode, episode where but I, I, yeah I've seen he's the show. got a friend who is a lesbian and a black woman and it's based on a true story and a true friend of his and he would go to Thanksgiving every year at her house and it's kind of the story of like them going to Thanksgiving every single year and her eventually coming to terms with her homosexuality and approaching it with her family who's pretty like kind of old-fashioned and she's raised by all women so and Terry Gross asked him like why did you have a woman like a black woman write and direct this like were you involved at all in the writing and and he said no like why would I be like there's there's too many like white male writers or why would you want to tell that story through the lens of a yeah of a man if authenticity is what you're after yeah. why would you want to do that yeah and i think people and it's refreshing to see that people are kind of getting that obviously not to the extent yeah. that we want like it's still a struggle but it's it's refreshing to see and that's yeah yeah, yeah. aziz is a huge inspiration oh, yeah, he's amazing uh, and yeah i mean Aziz Ansari, if you're listening, we'll publish your children's book. <laughs> Come on, Aziz. Actually, we are publishing a book by uh, an Indian American. Great. Um, next year, next fall, it's going to be really cool. And we are interested in getting an Indian American or an Indian illustrator. So that it goes, you know, it, it, those two things go hand in hand, right? Yeah. We don't want, unless we think there's some something to be gained by the kind of cross-cultural dialogue Mm -hmm. typically we're going to want to have um someone who's in that demographic working on that book to illustrate it great yeah awesome kind of what do you think where are we i don't know yeah we can i mean i'm i'm good i'm fine yeah we're going um, on two hours so yeah oh uh, and then the, what's next for short order poems i think yeah what oh yeah just kind of looking forward what's yeah. The, yeah yeah go yeah okay uh so next is um well i mean i guess i should give a nod to a huge project we did this past spring called the make it rain poems yeah I which was yeah it was kind of a it was interesting because you know here we're doing short order poems for all these years you know three coming up on three years mm-hmm. or had had three years as of March, you know, we've been doing it. And we got approached by Downtown OKC, this amazing nonprofit that promotes livelihood of downtown Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd gotten a grant. Uh, actually, when they approached us, they hadn't gotten the grant yet. But um, uh, by the time we sat down in January 2017, they'd gotten the grant, mm-hmm. uh, $5,000 grant from Springboard for the Arts, um, an organization out of uh, Minneapolis. Um, Minnesota Springboard for the Arts and uh, there's one other I, I can pull it up and, and, and look at it but um, and they wanted to do these 
these rain poems. They'd seen it done in Boston by mm-hmm. a group called Boston Mass. They'd done it a couple of years back, and they'd taken poems uh, by both famous and local poets and, and cut them out in stencils and put them on the streets in this hydrophobic medium such that they only showed up when they rain, when it rained. Hmm. And we're kind of like, yeah, that sounds interesting. And they're like, yeah, we want to do this, but we don't really know poets, and you know, and you guys do, and you have this presence, and so we want to yeah. team up with you. So at first we were kind of like, sure, yeah. I mean, I mean, it was a no-brainer. We had to do it. But what we didn't realize was it was a whole new ball game, right? It was mm-hmm. like, okay, how are we gonna, you know, normally we have our typewriters and we go to events and we sit mm-hmm. down and people order poems. Okay, how are we gonna ch- choose the orders? You know, how are we gonna generate the topics? Yeah. How are we gonna select the poets? How are we ta- we're talking about make it rain poems. Ah. And <laughs> and then how are we gonna? cut these stencils and put them in and when we originally talked about it we're like 10 to 15 poems we ended mm-hmm. up doing 27 wow so 27 spots around Oklahoma City if you go to tiny.cc backslash make it rain poems you get the map and you can go to that map and see uh, the location and the bio of the poet and stuff so okay. there was this huge learning curve that we didn't really quite anticipate I yeah. think <laughs> as fully as <laughs> as it, it hit us in the face when we were you know, and, and, and when it, I mean, a lot, there were a lot of parts to it, but essentially we lucked out. Um, uh, Rick uh, Sennett connected us with SNS Promotions on the south side of Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Sack, the owner there, uh, ter- wonderfully generous uh, human being who loves the arts, he had done some promo work for, for Rick Sennett, the guy who painted the silos, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he uses stencils. And so that's how I, I called Rick and I'm like, oh, okay. we need to have these four by five foot stencils. Hmm. for these poems that we've generated by we got the topics eventually from just uh, sending out a call on the internet Mm -hmm. we got about 60 some odd topics we drew them out of the hat and uh, sent them off to the the 14 poets who agreed to do the project we queried 20 or 18 total when we were the 19th and 20th and we just picked poets that had worked with us before that we knew we could trust that we liked that we thought were really good Mm -hmm. and so they were from all over the country we didn't make it only Oklahoma poets so things were coming together, and suddenly it was like, how do we cut these, these stencils? They're four by five feet. We'll cut them by hand in cardboard. But it, w- it would have taken forever. I mean, yeah. we did a, a couple test runs, and it's just like so clunky, and just to, you know, just to cut the letters nicely and everything. Yeah. And you're talking a big, big stencil. To do 27 would have been quite a feat. So uh, Steve Sack agreed to do it. Uh, he comped it for us. Because uh, it would have been really pricey otherwise, probably wouldn't have been able to afford it. And so that came into place. And then it was like, okay, we got everything. We got the product, we got the poems, we got the stencils. Great, now we just need to put them on the streets. <laughs> oh, easy. Oh, no, not easy at all. So we started Chad's driveway this this Friday. We finally get all the pieces together. I show up over at Chad's driveway and we do a test run. Mm-hmm. And, and what we found, and this was just like this X factor that we didn't anticipate, was that the quality of the concrete is going to dictate the quality of how well it the the, the print looks on the on the pavement when you get yeah. it wet. Older concrete, rougher concrete, it's going to bleed out from under the stencil, and you get mm-hmm. blurring, and sometimes it makes it illegible. Mm-hmm. And so we laid down like four or five different test runs on Chad's driveway, which are still there in various forms. <laughs> and we were kind of like going, okay, you know, like, you know, like the first one, we're like, oh dear Lord, this isn't gonna work. Like, yeah, why is it not gonna work? Cause I had done a test run with the product, yeah. but it was really small. It was just a triangle uh, okay. cut in plastic. 
we hadn't thought about the fact that once you start cutting all these letters and it gets big, mm-hmm. there's more bean and you know there's just so many more factors, physical yeah. factors that come into play. So in this case, it would have been better to actually have been in a matrix. Yeah, the computer <laughs> program the po- the poems on the yeah. under the sidewalk. into the matrix. We could have done it so much, <laughs> so much easier. Anyhow, uh, Chad came up with a great idea. Let's put little struts across them with bricks, and that'll press the, the stencil down to the concrete a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And it did seem to help. So we headed off <laughs> to start stenciling with all these huge stencils in plastic and bricks and slats of wood and everything and we end up over it the first one we put down was Fassler Hall yeah and I mean it went down pretty easily you know but um, uh, the the rough part was that we suddenly realized like yeah I mean I think I think it took us like what 20 30 minutes to put down the first one yeah right and we're like 27. <laughs> and he was in the midst of, of leaving commercial insurance job, right? And they're like just hammering him right and left. You know, okay, you got to do this. You got to do that. Okay, you got to meet with these clients. You got to tell them personally. Now you got to go to Chicago. And, do, and so he was like just, you know, running like crazy. Wow. And, um, and, then, and then it was April and we wanted to get him down before the rain. And so the pressure was really on. So we stenciled a little bit Friday evening. Then we stenciled all day Saturday. Yep. Which was just an odyssey. Just like and uh, we got like my my kids came along for a while and you know <laughs> they were they were having fun and then they were complaining. And then it became work. And then it yeah. rained. John Selvage, a, a friend and a poet who's part of the project, showed up at one point and was helping us. We were getting loopy and just losing our minds. And wow. you know, it was, and it's also it was fairly warm and there was wind, so the wind would pick up the plastic and blow it around. And there were all just these like with wild, the short order poems. There's well, many it, factors. That it, go it, it was yeah. reminiscent in some ways, except that this was just this other scale of physicality. I yeah. mean, it really was like moving these bricks and the wood and the plastic and going from site to site to site to site. So we stenciled all day Saturday. Then Chad had to take off and go to Chicago like the next yep. day. And and then it rained or something, I can't remember. And then I stenciled uh, part of a day with the downtown uh, OKC group, uh, mm-hmm. came out and helped. And then did one more day with uh, um, a deal, a friend of yep. mine. Um, and we finally got them all down, and then it poured rain that, that following weekend. It was just perfect. And most of them looked really, really good. Yeah. There are a couple that were a little uh, blurry at the, at the start. But, um, mm-hmm. And Chad doesn't know this. I haven't told you yet. But I did. I went uh, last Wednesday. Um, I went and took a picture of every single one of them. Really? Yeah. With, with your water bottle? Yeah. And cool. went, uh, and what, oh, went and Do they still and, work? Uh, so I'll, I'll show you. I'm going to send out an email to because awesome. downtown OKC is going to try and maintain them for a year. Oh, great. And so we were trying to see what quality they were. But yeah. the beautiful thing about it was like, there's some really fine, amazing poems. Yeah. I mean, and, and the and, reception in Oklahoma City was. Yeah, and we got a lot great. of press. That was yeah, cool. But the, the, the quality of the poems we got from these poets we queried were, were just phenomenal. Some of them was just yeah. so lovely. And, it's, and, the, and the look on the pavement is just awesome it's just yeah. so cool and um and they're all over the place i mean it took me the most of an afternoon just to go around spray them down and take a picture hmm. and like you know and and i was getting the vibe of all these different places in oklahoma city that we put them you know and feeling 
Oklahoma City is this living entity. And I think the highlight of it was I was standing at Packard's wetting that one down, the one by Brent Newsom, mm-hmm. about the ghost of Woody Guthrie, uh, you know, <laughs> haunting the streets and the red clay jar and just very Oklahoma sort of poet and mm-hmm. Oklahoma sort of language. And there was a fire truck driving by on, on uh, what is it, 23rd there? or No, 13th. Mm-hmm. And then that group of runners that runs up uh, Broadway and then comes across around that time of day. Mm-hmm. And like they're running across the poem as I was trying to spray it. But it was cool just because it was like, it just felt so urban all of a sudden. Yeah. It was really a nice moment. Versus like when I went out to wet down uh, uh, Shear's poem uh, out by the Criterion, you know, in the middle of the afternoon and there's no event going on and it's just like no man's land. <laughs> like there's yeah. nobody there, right? That's so you really got the feel of Oklahoma City. And it, it's, it struck me that this project really spoke to people in Oklahoma City, still is doing that, is going to continue mm. to do that for a year, um, and and kind of reached out to all these different elements of Oklahoma City. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because we, we solicited poets from a lot of different regions. So uh, there's a woman who lives in California. There's a woman uh, who lives in Brooklyn. There's someone in Savannah, Georgia, people who live in Shawnee and Oklahoma, Chandler, Oklahoma, Chicago, Illinois, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I don't think there's anywhere else, probably. But <laughs> that, so we're bringing those yeah. voices into this community um, to to uh, enrich it. But I think that the the community is is has enriched them because they've all participated in short order poems in one way or another so they've all been here at one point doing this which is neat to think about yeah that's great that's inspiring so so in kind of motivated by that we are now looking at becoming a 5013c for the first time um, which we've never had that status so we can start writing our own proposals for grants to do continue to do what we do well i don't think we'll ever get rid of the typewriter um, you know side of of what we do but we'd like to do more with Public poetry, yeah. uh, maybe some permanent poets uh, po- uh, poems up on billboards mm-hmm. and things like that, uh, yeah. up on uh, uh, mural spaces that normally you know you have murals. Why not a poem? Yeah. Um, we're we're throwing around a lot of different ideas, um, and then also some outreach, maybe some education stuff. So yeah. that's kind of where we are with things right now. But we're Great. both. Um, he's really focused on penny candy books, and and uh, I'm focused on relaxing this summer so I can get ready to go back into the classroom and teach really well in the fall. Well, thank you both so much for coming. Thank you, Brad. This was great. It was awesome to sit down with you, and I'm super happy with what, I mean, it's so great to see in Oklahoma City just everything that you guys are doing, so. Thank you. Keep it up. And you too. Yeah, thanks for what you're doing. That's awesome. All right, that is going to do it. Thanks again so much to Timothy Bradford and Chad Reynolds for coming over and sitting down in my old house. I really appreciate it that listening back through it was such a great conversation, and I'm glad that we have it to go back and listen to in the future. I hope you guys really enjoyed it too. Don't forget to go to iTunes and subscribe, number one. And number two, rate and review, because that really helps out. So leave a review if you liked this episode. Look forward to more in the future. I'm trying to keep it on a little bit of a schedule as far as releasing stuff, but stuff's been hectic, especially with moving. So if I miss a week every now and then, don't hate me. 
<laughs> have a great rest of your week have a great weekend depending on when you're listening to this wherever you are thank you for listening this is the dreamer podcast i'm your host brad Burnett. we'll see you soon